Welcome to the Smarter Trading Podcast. If you want to sharpen your trading skills or become a more savvy investor, then you're in the right place. Every week, we sit down with professional traders who are ready to share practical insights on what it takes to succeed in modern day markets. Smarter Trading, the show to watch to trade smarter. Medeiros is the founder and CEO of The Trade Risk. All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Evan or The Trade Risk. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Evan and guests may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. This episode of Smarter Trading is sponsored by Investors Business Daily. Some people say it's not possible to time the market, but William O'Neill and the experts at IBD created a system that helps you stay on the right side of the action, aggressive in uptrends and protected in downtrends. IBD digital members get daily updates on the current market conditions so they always know when to take action. Join IBD Digital today and be in the know. Podcast listeners can get their first two months for only $20 by going to investors.com slash Evan. That's investors.com slash E-V-A-N. Now, let's hear about today's guest. Our guest today is Frank Zarilla. Frank is the founder of Zor Capital, a registered investment advisory firm in New York. He started his career in 1997 and has been professionally managing money since 98. In this episode, we get tactical discussing Frank's short-term swing trading strategy. We talk about the importance of knowing where a stock's move started from, how to be situationally aware of your market surroundings, and why profit targets are all just made-up numbers. Frank also talks about the importance of owning the market as a core holding and how to trade around that position tactically. If you're an active, short-term swing trader, this one's for you. Please enjoy this episode with Frank Zarilla. You know, I've been looking forward to this conversation because you are an investment advisor that manages client accounts professionally, but you're someone who gets their hands dirty and you are, you know, trading tactically, you're looking at markets and I'm just really excited to hear kind of both ends. So before we get into the current stuff, I'd love to know just a little bit about your background, how you got started and kind of where and how you got to where you are today. Well, I started back in 1997. So a good friend of mine, John, right, just had come back from the Marines, did the boot camp, came back from the Marines. He was super excited. He uh, grabbed the paper. There was an ad on the paper that said, looking for cold callers. So John went, got the interview, was hired. I went in the next day. I was hired as well. So we started summer of 1997 as cold callers. Now, we didn't know until months later that, or, or weeks later, that it was a crew of, of some Brooklyn guys, some sharks, and they were hiring guys every two weeks to cold call for free. So you were cold call from 7 in the morning to 10 at night, no pay. And if after two weeks, right, if you were good, they'll keep you. But for the entire summer, they, they just took people for two weeks and let everyone go after two weeks. Wow. We got in there at pretty much at the end of, you know, August. We did the two weeks. We were good. And they kept us on. So, that, so I started as a cold caller back in 1997. Awesome. And so how long, you know... How long did you last doing that, basically? Because I know that that was, you know, that was the rage back then. I mean, that's that's what was bringing in the money. How long did that sort of uh, play itself out? Well, so everyone starts out as a cold caller, right? I don't mm -hmm. know if, if if much cold calling goes on now. I'm sure it still does, but not as yep. much. So you start out as a cold caller. Uh, then you get sponsored to take your Series 7, seven license to become an actual broker. Then mm -hmm. once you become a broker then you have to open certain accounts for the top broker, for whoever sponsored you, right? Got so it. we started in 97. I got my license in May of 1998. So that was almost six to eight months of pure cold calling. Uh, I got my license. Uh, then I had to open accounts for the guy who sponsored me, which back then what, what these brokers used to do is that you were on the phone actually 
cold calling pitch in stocks. That's that doesn't happen anymore, but but that's what it was. So then uh, I started at, at a small shop. Then I went to a company called Coleman and Company. That's where I got lucky uh, because Coleman and Company was a, a firm that was founded in 1951. It was a New York Stock Exchange member firm that back then meant something. And they hired a guy who just had come back from retirement, out of retirement. His name was Phil Puccio. Now, Phil was a big guy on Wall Street because Phil ran the equity desk for Drexel Burnham from 75 to 85. So Milken ran the bond. This guy ran the equity desk. Uh, so I learned a lot from him. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he will come in in the morning. He used to use a software called AIQ charts. And every morning he'll punch up whatever names and here, here's the list going through here, going through there. And, uh, and he was always pretty much spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, and unlike now, back then, in order, you, in order for you to learn from someone, you had to go to a firm and hopefully you found someone who could give you some mentorship. Now you can do this online. Sure. So back then that was a big deal. And I got lucky that this gentleman came out of retirement to, to run this firm for a few, for a couple of years. Got it. And so he was a bit of a mentor for you then in really sort of understanding the market, let's say, is it, was it a technical approach? Was that what he was sort of into at that time or was it still? He was, right. He was, look, he was, he was a technical guy. Like yep. He was one, he was a smart, he was a sharp guy. He was just everything about the business. Uh, you know, the way they used to do things back then at Drexel Burnham, uh, where they had accounts and, and, and he, he'll say, look, one guy, uh, he called me up to buy XYZ, 300,000 shares of utility stock. I know he's going to buy the whole group. So we're going to buy the whole group. So it was just everything, yeah. everything. But his, he, he was mostly, uh, a, a technician, mm-hmm. but then he also taught me how to, you know, how, how you run a brokerage firm, uh, some investment banking, IPOs. So it, it was just all around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's something that I feel like it's harder to get nowadays though, that side to get inside that side of the business. I know obviously a lot has changed, but I mean, do you think that gives you an insight nowadays, just understanding maybe a little more of the inner workings of, of some of these bigger firms and shops? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't think I, I've, listen, I, I, I've learned a lot throughout the years, right? And it just wasn't there. It was just I, I've been doing it for, for such a long time, sure. so nothing really surprises me. And even now, when you start reading some of the things that are happening, uh, even stuff like Archegos that just recently happened to those to those big firms, yeah. Like, look, listen, th- this all happened. I, I mean, I seen at firms, you know, sit downs uh, because of you know they wanted to do a deal, and the deal was backed up by some guy in Brooklyn, and so you see everything. Sure. So nothing surprises me as far as what, what goes on uh, in the mm-hmm. business. Got it. So when did you decide to sort of break out and launch your own uh, advisory firm? Oh, that was 2011. So, right. So licensed in 1998 as a Series 7 broker, uh, then all the way till 2011, dropped my Series 7, took my 65. Uh, and the reason why the business was changing uh, the way you communicate with clients or prospective clients is just a little different. It just started to change. The mm-hmm. phone became more and more useless, mm-hmm. right? And when you are at a brokerage firm and, the, and I said, hey, I want to send this chart over to my client, people got to sign off on it. You, you got to sign off on it. You can't draw any lines or any or any numbers, nothing at all. It, that, that just doesn't... So things were changing rather quickly, the technology side, but the firms, they don't change as quick. Mm. So then, so I decided, look, I'm just going to do this on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I always been on my own anyways. Um, when you work at a firm, you're pretty much an independent contractor. Uh, so I, I've always been on my own. I just took the leap of faith and I just did it. So were you able to... Um... I mean, you had connections, obviously, at that point, you obviously had relationships with clients. So you were able to have a pool of capital, perhaps to kind of get you started on on your own two feet. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Awesome. And you haven't looked back since there's no other way you'd have it basically, you know, going forward. I mean, this is the path, essentially, that you you find is is best for at least you, right? I think for everybody, uh, even for the client. All right. So put it this way. When I was a broker, the commissions were like, at a minimum, the commission was $100. That's a minimum on the way in. That's if you gave the guy a break. 
Yeah. I have tickets going back to 2001, 2002 that we used to have, we, we had to write tickets. So mm-hmm. if I wanted to buy a stock, I had to write a ticket. I had to go to the trading desk and give it in, right? I have tickets with $3,000 commissions on it, okay? Wow. So when someone tells me, oh, I'm paying $4 for a trade and that's a lot, that's just crazy. So yeah. even for the client, because let's say, for example, that you did the right thing uh, and you were buying stocks and selling stocks. And let's say you did 100 trades and 25 of those trades were wash trades where you mm. didn't make, you didn't lose, you stopped yourself out because you cut your losers short, whatever the case may be. You're in the hole at least $2,500 in commissions. If I only charged you, if I only charged you fifty dollars on the way in and fifty on the way out, you're in the hole twenty five hundred dollars. So yep. if that's a one hundred thousand dollar account, that's two point five percent. If it's a fifty thousand dollar account, that's five percent. So it's huge. Yeah. Now you have zero commissions, right? And 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 the advisory fee that you charge a client, the maximum is two percent a year. So it's nothing at all. And one of the reasons why a lot of Series Seven brokers do not want to make the jump. From being a Series Seven transactional broker to a to a sixty five advisor is because mm-hmm. they're going to take a humongous pay cut. You're going to take a pay cut because if you're trading in and out, there's certain guys, uh, or at least back then that were in the business, that had let's say a measly two million dollars on the management. All right, they would generate fifty to seventy five thousand dollars in commissions every month. You can't do that as an advisor, right? So there's a hum- there's a humongous benefit uh, to the client, and this is a huge benefit to the client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely is a better experience for sure. And when you so when you migrated over to the Series sixty five side of things, what was your kind of philosophy for clients that you were onboarding? How were you, how were you thinking about markets, portfolio construction, all of that? What was your pitch to them? Right. So I don't, unlike many advisory firms, uh, I, w- listen, we're not uh, making specific recommendations. Like for example, you're, you're 25. So we're going to give you this. You're 65. No, no, no. It's all the same. We're trading. We are looking to outperform the market. We're not going to account to account. You only deserve 2%. You only deserve 5%. That's not what we're looking to do. Uh, So we're looking, listen, I'm looking to outperform the market with preserving capital, right? I think there's a big difference between, between, let's say, for example, uh, on any given year, you make, you're up 25%. Uh, If you're up 25%, but you had a 30% drawdown, that's a rough 25%. I don't want that 25%. I want 25 and five or 25 and seven, right? So I'm looking to create gains without keeping you up at night because we're, we have a 30% drawdown. Uh, so it's basically, I'm looking to outperform the market you know, with, with preservation of capital as my number one concern. So that is that feels like a different approach from what most advisors might because you you know typically it's well we start with 60 40 and then if you're you know if you're younger you can go more stocks and if you're older you go you know that's what i get from an outsider view in this professional side of things and so you're taking the risk adjusted returns approach right right so here's the thing right so the advisory business the cookie cutter advisory business listen it's a great business right what but what you're looking to do is you're looking to Grab the money and keep it in house. Mm. You don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. That's just too much career risk. If Got you it. go out there and say, okay, I'm going to forget 60 40, I'm going to go try to outperform the market and it doesn't work out for you, that's career risk. You're going to lose those clients. So they'd rather take that money in, right? They're in, they're in the marketing business. They're going to keep it in house. Uh, they're not going to rock the boat. They'll give you the 60 40, they'll buy you 34 different ETFs, and you're somewhere in line with the market, and that's it. That's what they're looking to do. Hedge funds, on the other hand, some of them, they try to go and, and try to you know do well and perform. And when it doesn't work out, the first thing that happens is that the money goes out the window. So most people, most advisors don't want to take on that risk. Yeah. So they rather just take your money, keep it steady. The fees continue to pile on and you're happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's that. I'm looking it's to that. go. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking. And listen, and that's a great thing because you can do that. All you're doing is just taking in that money. Either you're giving it to someone else. Uh, whether you're doing, uh, you know, ETFs or whether you're doing one of these, what, what do they call uh, the wrap, the wrap programs, the wrap fees. Yep. Yep. 
and you 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 have off the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. You make a couple of phone calls, a couple of marketing calls, you go out golfing, try to network, and that is it. That's yeah. not what I'm looking to do. I got to imagine a, a decent chunk of your job then is sort of educating clients that you are going to look different and you are doing something that's not an index, right? Like you're doing something else that's not just buying a few ETFs and passively holding. So there's an education component. Am I correct on that? Right. So here's so now we're going to jump into that and we're going to jump into holding uh, the, the index ETFs yes. as core holdings. I don't know when it changed. Maybe 2011, 2015. Like when I first started, no one knew what the S&P 500 was. There was no comparison, right? You got your statement once a month and that is it. You have no idea what the market did for that month at all. Nowadays, you're being compared to the S&P 500. So you can educate your client all you want. Evan, I'm different. I'm this, I'm that. That's going to, the education part is going to buy you time, Hmm. right? It'll buy you a few months, maybe a year. But the minute that you start to diverge too much against the S&P 500 in the opposite direction, if the market is up and you're flat or down, that Hmm. education goes out the window. (laughs) And that's the reason why if you manage money for other people, whether you're an advisor, whether you're in a hedge fund, no matter how much you educate someone, right? Even, Even guys, for example, who are dedicated shorts, they're still being compared to the S&P 500. So why not own the S&P 500, right? Let's say, for example, uh, you, you own 25 to 50% of what you have. You put it in the S&P 500. So no matter what happens, you're going to have some type of participation because you're going to be judged based on what that did. So that's, that's one of the most important things to own the S&P 500 from that perspective. If you're an advisor, you manage money. If you are a client, if you are, you know, Joe Small, you know, doing your own thing, by owning the S&P 500 and having a long-term time frame, you are guaranteed to own all the big longest term winner in the market ever. You're going to own the Facebook, the Apples, every single one of them. So it's important to own the S&P 500. You're going to own them without company specific risk, number one. Mm. And number two, if you look at the stats, I forget who uh, who came out with the study and the stats, that the market gains over the last, whatever it is, 80 to 100 years came from 4% of stocks. <laughs> Those stocks are going to be in the S&P 500. So it's in your best interest to own the S&P 500 as a core holding. You could increase and decrease depending on what's going on with the market. The market goes down 15%. The average intra-year decline for the market in the, in the last, since 1980, is 14%. So when the market goes down 14%, you want to increase your holding into the SPY. Once we get you know top heavy, like now... Then you can start to decrease, but you always want to buy some on the way down. Um, so that so and and as a trader, as an individual trader, I don't believe in in a hundred percent cash positions where I'm going to go in and out and wiggle. I don't believe in that, right? Um, and there's certain times in the market where you're not in tune with what's going on with the S and P 500 over the last seven months. Mark has been chugging higher and most stocks are not doing anything at all. We had little small pockets of opportunities to trade, right? So the market is going up and people who are swing trading are not, they're not gaining any traction. Now, if you own the S&P 500, you're not going to catch FOMO because you own it already. You own a piece of it. You're there. So even if you're not in tune, you have some type of participation while the market is going up. Here, Here we have two or three months left. You had a bunch of guys saying, hey, uh, the market is up 20%. I'm down 10. I got to force the issue here. So now you start forcing the issue, trying mm-hmm. to you know gain some traction. If you own the S&P 500, you, you're not going to catch that FOMO. So there's a lot of different important factors to owning those ETFs as core holdings for advisors, uh, swing traders, do it, you know, do it yourself, guys, everyone. Yeah, I, I so I've heard you talk about this and and I love this mindset, this approach. I think just like you articulated there, it's a uh, it's the foundation, it's the core, right? Like it gives you your foundation of own, of being involved in the market, you know, getting paid for for holding stocks. But then I mean, it's almost like you've taken the 60/40. I hate 
you know, continue to keep bringing right. that up, but you've taken the 60 and you, sure hold the 60% stocks, but you're 40% instead of bonds, you're going to tactically and actively and risk manage that portion. If you look at the numbers, there's a website I think called Portfolio Backtesting, whatever the case may be. If mm-hmm. you look at the numbers, they're not off by that much. If you held a 20% in the Qs, 20 in the SPY, 20 in the IWM and 40% cash versus 100% S&P 500, the numbers are not far off. The volatility, the drawdown is like 19% if you were 100% invested to 13%. Right. And yeah. that 40% cash, that doesn't include, again, you, you know, the market going down 15% and you're buying more. It doesn't sure. include all that stuff. So even if you did 60 cash, you did well. So let's do 60 S&P, IWM, whatever it is, QQQs, and then the other 40, like you said, tactically. We're yeah. going to try to outperform tactically with the other 40%. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what, you're going to be, you know, well, you know, who knows what will happen with interest rates, but obviously the 60-40 has got a great tailwind for the past 30 years of just right. those interest rates getting crushed, bonds performing beautifully. So if that starts mm-hmm. to flip, you're yep. you're you're going to be happy that you're a tactical approach to, you know, trading right. stocks. So awesome. Um, I really like that approach. And it's something that I think everyone can, like you say, retail traders, do it your home traders. They can implement this. They can think about this for themselves, hold a core holding, and then take a small amount and, you know, uh, tactically sort right. of uh, trade the markets however they see fit. So mm-hmm. so let's get into your your tactical bucket then for the market. How how do you frame out your strategy? Give us give us your take on uh, on trading. Right. So what's important to me, right? What's important to me is what works best and what matters the most within my time frame. So if my trading time frame, not my ideal, my trading time frame based on my trades is anywhere between one and 10 days, then I need to find out what matters the most within that time frame. So what would, you know, for example, if you want to own a stock for the long term, numbers, growth, earnings, sales, story means a lot more. You want to buy something for the short term. You want to take advantage of the way this of the way stocks move. Those things don't matter. So first, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking at. Let me look at the year to date winners, right? Which I want to own the best performing stocks, right? So let me look at those stocks to see if I can find some common characteristics that I can build a scan based on what I see, right? Without any filters, right? Because if you start putting filters. Based on books that you read, you're not going to get the, the what was actually the true, I hate to say leaders, the true performers. Mm. So if I say, look, the year to, let's look at the year-to-day winners, right? And you say, okay, let's start with a price above 15. Then that's going to knock off at least 500 stocks. And those 500 stocks are going to be the best performers, more than likely. Mm. So what I want to do, what I like to do is go to uh, the year-to-day winners every single year um, and when, once you go through that list of first 100 names, I can almost guarantee you that 90% of them are going to have the same exact pattern and you want to build a scan based on that pattern. Then you want to, you want to trade these stocks based on the way stocks move. So if you look at any stock, ask yourself, where did the move start? Hmm. Right. And you're going to see a whole bunch of myths being busted. All right. Hmm. A lot of people, they look at breakouts uh, well, it's breaking out because it was resistance here and now it's at that level again, but they don't see where the stock has come from. Mm. And that matters a lot. So if you have a stock that's already up 20% in four days, going to a, a key breakout level, chances are that's going to fade or it's not going to have enough juice to continue to go. So if my time frame is one to 10 days, I'm not buying anything that's up multiple days in a row. That's number one. Number two, if you look at the studies, stocks that are down multiple days in a row, three, four, five, six days, outperform the index and stocks that are up multiple days in a row. So that's one of the scans that you can build based on that study uh, and look for stocks that are down multiple days in a row. And if you look at the best performing stocks on a monthly basis, right, this is what I did. And you, you, you put that scan on, you're going to see that any... 30 to 50% of those stocks with that, that, that 21 day time frame have that particular uh, criteria down three days or more 
Hmm. And then that's, you'll see that's normally where the, where, where the move starts from. So you want to look at stocks, a lot of stocks, and ask yourself, where did this move start from? So I think this is incredibly valuable advice, and it's advice you don't hear too often because I think you're spot on. From what I can tell, from what I you know see out there, the retail traders are obsessed with breakouts and momentum, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know going after those long moves. And you're saying, if look at where those moves start, and and they start when things are a little dicey, when things look a little uncomfortable and ugly, and yeah. that's where you're focusing some of your attention right. and scans. That's, right, right. That's so awesome. if you look at if you look, listen. If you look at the year-to-day winners, every I have a video on YouTube from 2017, 2006. It's the same exact thing from now. If you look at the year-to-day winners, what you're going to see is you're going to have a stock that was left for the dead. It wasn't trading at all, barely trading, 52-week lows, and then suddenly news comes out. The stock goes up huge on tremendous volume. 10 to 15 days later, you get sideways to down action. At the end of that sideways action, you get inside days, contraction, volume contraction. The stock is ready to move higher again. I'm telling you right now, we go to the year-to-date winners. We're going to see that at least at the first 50, at least on 35 to 40 of those names. The same exact setup. Yeah, and especially... I mean, especially this year too, I think with energy stocks and like a lot of these things that were totally crushed, like, you know, think of the inflation trade that just came about and, you know, we're putting narratives on this, but I mean, these stocks were just left for dead and they came ripping back and they're some of the best performers. Right. And when you, when you start to see that and then you start reading books, well, I don't want to buy a 52 week low because of all the resistance. If you look at the stock, where's the resistance? They went straight up. Yeah. Like there was nothing even there. And what people don't realize is that when you have a stock that gets crushed from 20 from 20 to $2 a share, most of those sellers are out of the way. So there is no resistance going back up. And if you look at the charts, every single year-to-day winner started from a 52-week low. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the sellers have been, you know, uh, evaporated over the past years. And yeah, it, it can it can surprise to the upside. And, and that's, I think what, you know, we're almost looking for in some sense. Um, so, okay. Uh, let's say someone buys into this philosophy. They say, okay, I'm going to look at these year to date winners, but I am scared of buying things that are at 52 week lows. I am scared of buying stocks that get pummeled. How do we, how do you do it thoughtfully? What is the, what is the framework you're using to maybe manage risk position size? Give us a little bit of insight on that. Right now, listen, um, you can buy one share. It's going to cost you nothing, right? <laughs> so if you wanted to get comfortable, just buy one share. Buy five shares of anything. So that way you can sell on the way up. Uh, so it's not going to cost you anything at all. So you can try things out for free now. It's amazing, right? And as you try, and all, all you have to do is, look, we have the, the software that's out there right now where I can go back, you know, I'm, I use TC2000. I can go back to 2000. 2015, and look at all the best winners in the first three months, the next three months, the next three months. And there, what you do is you build a pattern library, right? And, and you start to see that, look, these are the same patterns over and over again. And the only way you're going to feel comfortable is by putting money behind it. And because it's going to cost you nothing at all, you can buy one, two, three, or four shares and mm -hmm. just get used to it, right? Because look, position sizing is probably the first or second most important thing in trading that no one talks about. That makes it, it's position size. It makes a huge difference, yeah. a tremendous difference. You know, we can trade the same stocks, uh, you know, buy them, buy them at the same time, sell them at the same time. And because you put more behind an idea, you're going to outperform me by a lot. Right. And, and when it comes to trading, you got to do what makes you feel comfortable. Hmm. Right. If for some reason you can't handle short-term stuff, then don't even try it because it's yeah. going against who you are. If you're not wired that way, then you can't do it. You move on. You go on to a longer time frame. It's so logical. I love hearing you talk, you know, uh, just lay out this framework because it's look at the year-to-date winners, put in the work, do the homework, look at those year-to-date winners, and then get comfortable. Buy one share. Just start inching into it. It makes so much sense, but it's doing work. I mean, <laughs> there's no shortcut here. You got to put in the work. Right. You have to do the work, right? And here's another thing in regards to trading. I think it was Van Tharp that said, 
years ago. We don't trade the market. We trade our beliefs about the market. And I believe that, yeah. right? I truly believe that, number one. And number two, trading is all about execution. If you can't execute properly, it doesn't matter. You know, when people say, hey, Zor, how well can I do with your list? My answer is, how well do you execute? <laughs> can you put buy orders in? Can you, are you going to put the buy orders in before the trigger price trying to be cute and, and, and make a, you know, and try to make an extra 10 cents? Are you going to take the stop? Are you going to put the buy order in after you had 10 straight losers? That's execution. Are you going to mm-hmm. continue to put those orders in no matter what? And people can't, and, and people can't do it. And the reason why you need to do the work is because if you follow someone else's work, when that guy goes through a, a losing streak of 10 to 15 trades, he's not going to have an issue with it. He knows that's part of the game. Mm-hmm. You, on the other hand, who are just following along without doing the work, you're going to give up. You're going to quit and go find something else. So the work needs to be done. And it's all about execution. And you can, t- you can take, if I'm a 50% trader, mm-hmm. you can do the opposite of what I do. Mm-hmm. And if you have the proper execution and money management, you're going to make money off of my trades, doing the opposite of what I'm doing. It's that simple. And when it comes to beliefs, again, we don't trade the market. We trade about, you know, if you believe that only stock above $15 work, or they have to be above a certain moving average, or they have to be near the 52 week high. If you believe that, even though that's not true, you can see that for yourself in the year to day winners, you can still make that work because that that's your belief system. Mm. And you have the proper execution and you, and you execute well. Mm. So you can, you can trade on the lie, but if you execute well, you're going to do well. And we will be right back. Those of you who know Trade Risk know we are all about rules-based investing. And that's why we are so excited to have Investors Business Daily as a podcast sponsor. William O'Neill and the experts at IBD created a proprietary market timing system that keeps you on the right side of the action, aggressive in uptrends and protected in downtrends. IBD digital members get daily updates on the current market trend, so they always know if it's a good time to be invested. Members also get access to IBD's top trade ideas, in-depth analysis, educational webinars, and much more. This is the framework for responsible investing, knowing when to be involved in the market and what stocks to have on your watch list. And with IBD Digital, you'll get both the information and education. Podcast listeners can get their first two months for only $20 by going to investors.com slash Evan. That's investors.com slash E-V-A-N. Now, let's get back to today's show. Let's shift gears to something that I love that I've heard you talk about a lot, and that is situational awareness. So Mm, mm, mm. if I understand your take correctly, you are a big believer in interpreting what's going on in real time. There's no, you know, there there is some, some finesse. There's an art to this in some respect of putting the pieces together. So why don't you tell me about market environment, situational awareness, and how that plays into your system and strategy? Right. So we have different market environments. They're different, right? Sometimes, look, at least once or twice a year, we had it in January and we had it at the end of August, where stocks, they break out and they go. You got these beautiful momentum, old school momentum breakouts start to work, Right maybe once or twice a year. Then we go into this chop zone where it just, they don't work out the way they, they normally work out. So, th- so one of the ways that I, that I know what's going on is I'm looking at my rolling five-day watch list. So every day in the morning, I have a watch list, right? That watch list has a plan. I'm, lo- I'm only looking to buy those stocks if and only if they go to the previous day high plus 10 cents. That, so they have a plan. So I track the rolling five-day watch list, right? So if I'm seeing my rolling day five-day watch list where none of the stocks are breaking out, that tells me something about the market. If I see that they're breaking out and they're all coming in, that tells me something about the market. So then you need to adjust to that, right? If stocks are only going, going up for a couple of days, maybe I can't wait for the stock to go up 15%. I'm going to have to take seven. Mm-hmm. And you can do the same thing with your trading. 
my last five trades, right? My last, were they winners? How much did I make? How much did I lose? My last 10 trades. And then you start to adjust your trading size, your holding period based on what's actually happening. And the S&P 500 is not going to tell you that. The S&P 500, you know, you, you, you know, you take out the last two weeks, it's told you the market's been great for stocks and it hasn't. Yeah. Right. So that's what the rolling five day watch list tells you, or at least for me, it tells you how things are moving, how things are working, what's working, what's not working, what should I do? Are all my buys at 935? Are they fading the open? So I got to now put my buy stop orders at 945, 10 o'clock, things like that. In real life, that, that's called common sense. You cross, <laughs> you cross the street, you're looking both ways before you cross. I love it. So, so what is the, Give us, give us a little color on the five-day watch list. You don't have to say exactly the scans, but I'm curious, like, how does someone, what does that mean to someone else? Is it uh, just, it's the stocks, it's a specific setup that you're looking for and you're tracking no, the so number? It's my, so it's my, it's my watch list. So every day before the market opens, I go through my scans and I have a list of stocks. Got it. Let's say it's 10 of them. And I'm going to buy those stocks if and only if they go to the previous day highs. Those are, that's my watch list. You can have your own rolling five-day watch list. It's my watch list of the last five days. Again, that tells me, are they going through the trigger price? Are they breaking out? Are they you know, going up for two or three days? Are they stalling? Are they coming back in? So that's what that tells me. And just to make it crystal clear, I mean, this is, this is your, your, your test on the market to really show how strong it is. Like you're looking at a stock, it's a market of stocks. So you're looking at the, how the stocks are behaving. You're not caring about the indexes or anything like that because that's not what you're trading in this, in this no. specific example. That's not what I'm trading. And I think, listen, I don't look at the indices. Mm. I'm not waking up in the morning and saying, well, the index is here. Very, listen, I don't know what the market has done until the morning when I do my market breath sheet. Hmm. That I have to go on to CNBC to punch in what the Dow and or what the S&P, the Russell and the NASDAQ did the day before. So I don't know. Hmm. Right. And again, we can look this whole year for the most part. The S&P has been doing well. Most individual names have not been doing well. The guys who actually trade for a living, you hear them, the guys who are honest. I'm struggling. I'm down. Market is up 20 percent. So the stocks, the individual names tell you what's going on with the market. And... What about, I mean, it's, it's along the same lines. I just want to poke and prod a little bit here, but market breath. I see you post a decent amount on market breath. Is that, is that just for, you know, general color or is that factoring into your trading decisions when you show something like, you know, half the stocks are 10% or more off highs? I mean, is that, is that actionable to you? Mm, no. Um, so market breath is useless, at least to me. Mm -hmm. 99% of the time. <laughs> it's only going to mean something maybe once or twice a year. Uh, and, and it's pretty much the opposite of, like, for example, the other day, let me give you, uh, the other day on 8-20, August 20, 2021, I put a whole bunch of stats on Twitter. Uh, whatever, you know, we had a spike in one month lows. We, you know, it's amazing. And when you look at the breath, you know, you laugh because you look at the indices, people might think that's bearish. On that day, I bought the IWO because it was down 16% from the 52-week high. So negative breath, like really bad and things are going down. When you get, when you get a spike in one month lows, that's when people actually think that, hey, I got to like take some risk off and be more conservative, that's usually when you get the, be the best risk reward trades because mm -hmm. the market is already down you know, multiple days in a row. The sellers have already beat up, beaten up a lot of stocks. That's the best time to get involved. So for me, breath, I do it now as a habit because I've mm -hmm. been doing it for such a long time that I just put in the numbers. Um, but they're useless for 99% you know, of the year. Got it. It might be okay once or twice, especially... Uh, Negative, uh, positive breath divergence. When the market is down a lot and you get less lows, mm. those work a lot better than, than negative breath. And Got I think it. it was Tom McClendon who said it best that negative breath or bad or negative divergence, it's a, it's a, it's a condition, not a signal. You can't trade off of that. You can trade off positive breath. Market is down multiple days in a row. You, you know, we're down huge. You can, you can trade that. Negative, uh, 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 you know, trying to pick a top, different story.
I love it. I'm going to fire a couple of other um, sort of market indicators or measures that people look at often. What about VIX volatility? Anything like that factor into your specific trading? No, I've not looked at. I have not looked at the VIX in a long time. You can't even trade the VIX. So the VXX just doesn't work. The TVIX. So no, and that just and over the over the last couple of years, that it's, it hasn't been actionable. It, you just. It doesn't get you anywhere, no. And I think looking for looking for reasons to be bearish is going to cost you money. Mm. It's going to cost you money because the ideas that you're going to miss because oh my god, you know the VIX is down six days in a row, and I'm not going to I'm not going to put trades in today. It's going to cost you money. Hmm. What about so? This is one of the more debated. Um, you know, technical analysis sort of uh, uh, measurements is volume. Volume is such a hot topic on traders. Where do you come down on it for individual stocks? I don't use volume the way the books say they use volume. Okay. You know, listen, what used to work years ago might not work the same now, right? And a stock going from 10 to 15 with or without volume is worth the same. Right? 50% is 50% with or without volume. That's number one. Number two, if you go into a trade and you pre-plan your trades where you say, look, this is my buy stop, this is my sell stop, and the stock hits your sell stop, what are you gonna what are you gonna do? Say, well, the volume was low, so I'm not gonna take that eight percent stop because the volume was low. I mean, no, right? So, and I understand that there's certain people look, listen, you there's a lot of marketing involved on Twitter, right? There's a lot of people who run subscription services and and it's an easy way out to see a stock breaking out and say, well, uh, it's got to have 40% volume or else the breakout doesn't work, right? So if it goes up and and the volume is not there or it never triggered, if it goes up and the volume is still not there, but it continues to go up, well, you know, you got to make exceptions. But if you look at volume and individual trades, um, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. My top scan has to do with volume, but not on that particular day. So if you study the best performing stocks on a year-to-day basis, like I said, you're going to see a stock that's trading near the lows for the most part. It's been beaten up. It trades no volume at all. And then on one given day, it's got a bar. I mean, a huge up day, a huge volume bar. That volume bar to me is important, hmm. right? But not for that day. I am going to wait for that stock to set up for 10 to 15 days. Now, if you look at the year-to-day winners, that first setup, what happens at the very end, you get the price contraction and you get the volume contraction. Once that volume dries up to almost nothing, that's normally a signal the stock is going to go up again. So that's so even so now on TC2000, you can put colors. I have a color that the candle goes a certain color if it's an inside day on the lowest volume in the last 10 days. Now I know that stock is probably going to be ready. So that's that's a low volume criteria, not a heavy volume criteria. It's a low volume criteria for me. Uh, although the scan is looking for big volume, but that big uh, it, that big volume to me on that day is not actionable. It'll be days later. Got it. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. So it's uh, using volume, but it's pretty I don't know unconventional way or a different way and. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not the traditional breakout need volume. Yeah. And you don't have to believe, just go and look at the year to day winners and you're going to see the same thing for the top 100 names. That's all you need to do. And if you can, like, for example, I, uh, the other day, um, I'm putting these, uh, these charts on Twitter with no volume. I need volume. I need this. I need that. Uh, I need to see the volume. And when I look at the ones that people chose, I mean, the biggest performers, they had no volume at all. Yeah. There was no like oh, oh on the up days it was up more volume and down days it was no you, had, you there was nothing there yeah when stocks go up and now with options um you know a lot of the volume goes to options as well but again what you what people need to do is just go to the the, the what works best within your, within, the, within your time frame and look at the common characteristics and see if what matters and what doesn't matter. So, you know, as I, as I was thinking about, as you were talking and I think about what I've seen you post on Twitter, I basically 
don't think I ever see your charts come with any technical indicators, right? Is there is there any technical indicator besides price you're you're just looking just at? Move, just moving just moving averages, yeah. Uh, but no, anything else like RSI? No, no, no. So you talked um, you've talked a little bit about the the time frames. Obviously, this is this is your one to ten day time frame. This is what works for you. Some traders that are listening to this might have longer term timeframes. I have heard you talk about weekly setups and doing basically exactly what you're doing, this framework on higher timeframes. What have you found? What's the differences? Is it just as successful? What's what's kind of the differences between the, the different timeframes? Right. So first off, um, if you if your scans are based on the way the market moves, then you can use the same scans for intraday, daily, and weekly time frame. That's just the way the market moves. So you you get you have to make sure that your scans are based on the way market moves. So that so the weekly, listen, a lot of people work for a living. They they don't trade full time. They just don't have the time or the ability to swing trade on a daily time frame. The weekly gives you an opportunity to to swing trade, but you you only care about one candle a week. So the rest of the day, the rest of the, you know, Monday through Friday, it's irrelevant. So it's a lot easier for someone to follow at home, uh, trading weeklies. Number one, number two, usually with the weeklies, normally the stop losses are a little bit wider, right? Mm-hmm. And my recommendation to people, if you're not wired to take short-term losses quickly, then wider, but just use a wider stop loss. There are people out there who don't want to take a 4% loss in a matter of a day, but they're okay taking that 4% loss six months later, right? Mm-hmm. That's just the way some people are. So if you can't take short-term losses, then just use a wider stop. That's going to keep you in the name a little bit longer. It doesn't guarantee that it's going to work out, but it will keep you in the game longer so it can satisfy whatever it is, whatever your needs are. Yeah. Uh, so that's the reason why I use weeklies. And and to me, just like holding the, the ETFs as a core holding, I also believe in, in having diversifying your timeframes, mm. having some short-term stuff, some medium stuff, which is the weeklies, and then the long-term stuff is the indices. So I believe in diversifying your timeframe as well. Yep. Uh, I, I I love that approach too. I'm a big believer in that. and And it goes back to kind of I mean, just what you've echoed throughout this whole this whole conversation. It's it's just so you don't get you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You can you can diversify based on time frames, having those core holdings, having some foundation, so you're not going zero percent cash to a hundred percent invested. Right? It's common sense investing in in some you know fashion. <laughs> and some people can do that. Some people can do that. The majority can't. We're not all uh, you know powerhead is batting fourth and you know third and fourth. So most, some people can, very little amount. Most people at home cannot do that. So what about uh, shorting stocks? Is that something you do? No. I mean, listen, I do it. I don't, uh, I, it's very, extremely rare. And and the reason why, a couple of reasons. Number one, um, like I said before, uh, I run all the accounts as one. So if I buy a thousand shares of Apple, it goes to, to everyone immediately. Got it. Shorting, I have a lot of IRAs, people with, so I can't short. Um, and so I don't wake up in the morning. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm going through my scans. They're all long scans. I, I'm not going through short scans. Got it. I'll go through short scans when the market is up a lot in a straight line and people are saying, hey, we're never going down. Then I'll go through the short scan. And if you really think about it, this probably was a great year to short individual stocks because, Mm -hmm. you know, the NASDAQ is near highs, but yet I think only 40% of stocks are above the 200-day moving average. Mm. So, and I think shorting individual stocks, I mean, you run the risk of a buyout. But shorting individual stocks, you know, has worked a lot better than shorting the S and P five hundred. Like you have a lot of these hedge funds that the way you know they want to hedge and they hedge by shorting the market. <laughs> That's the wrong thing. Yeah, <laughs> you should hedge by shorting stocks and go long the market because we've seen for the last couple of years that we can go you know with these divergences where nothing goes up except the fang names, and they just keep the market up. 
So I don't short stocks. Um, if I did, right. So let me rephrase that. I short stocks extremely rare. Got it. I'll play with the inverse ETFs a little bit easier for me. Uh, but if I, if I shorted stocks, then I'm going to use the same scans. I'm just going to reverse them. So if one of my main scans is looking for stocks down three days in a row, I'm going to reverse that scan looking for stocks up three days in a row or more, more like five or six. If I, if I use inside day as one of my criterias, I'm going to do the same thing. Something up five, six days in a row, I want that inside day and then I'm going to short through that low. Got so it. I'll do that. Uh, uh, also, if I'm looking to short, uh, if you look, some of the biggest pullbacks happened in stocks that were the biggest winners in the last three months. Unlike what people say, look for 52-week lows. Mm. Some of those biggest pullbacks are stocks that went parabolic. Mm. Uh, but it's not, I don't focus on that. So when when things get you know turbulent or or we start to see those corrections set in, your 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 long setups aren't triggering, so you're probably naturally more in cash, and then you're ready to deploy that cash back into the S and P 500 core if the pullback gets big enough, right? Like that's kind of the way it works in some fashion. For ex- right, right, exactly. Like when I bought the IWL, uh, it was down 16 percent from the 52 week high. Uh, I think it was in March or something like that. March, I uh, five. Three five, March fifth, I went long arc for a trade. It was down thirty percent from the fifty-two week high. So these ETFs, uh, specifically the index ETFs, when they're down that much, that's usually the best time. When you're going into specific sector ETFs, then they go down a little bit more. So you, it's not the fifteen; it's more like twenty-five to thirty percent. So I'm going to go in to those trades. With a long-term time frame, I just look. I just picked up KWeb, right? Mm-hmm. KWeb is down. I don't Hammered. know what's down. Fifty percent from the highs, right? And it's the entire sector. I went in there. I think with a two point five percent allocation, with the intentions, if it goes down to the ten percent, I'm going to get it to five percent, right? But that's with ETFs. I don't do that with individual names. Yeah, it's very thoughtful, and it's very. Yeah, it's just very thoughtful and patient. And I really like that approach because like you say, it's not something, even that approach of, of getting into, you know, these basket ETFs, um, you don't have to stare at the markets all day to do that, right? I mean, you, you don't get 50%, 40% drops in KWeb all that often, right? So you're just there right. nibbling when that opportunity arises. And, and again, my intention is not, hopefully... My first buy might be my worst buy, but my intention is to go in there and nibble on the way down. And if I don't get the opportunity and the stock starts to go and the, and the ETF starts to go up, then I'm going to increase the size. Once you get that bottom, it goes sideways for a few months, it gets back above the 200. Now I can size up, mm. but I'm looking to buy blood specifically in ETFs, not individual names. I want to, as we start to slowly wind down here, I wanted to talk about trading slumps and when things just aren't going well. And you have a good amount of videos where I hear you, you know, doing the work on yourself or you just come up and say, hey, I've traded like, you know, like crap the past week and I'm and I'm taking less positions or I'm, you know, something like that. So give me a little bit on how you think about that, how you do work when things aren't going well. Right. So, so when things are not going well, right, uh, but the market is going well, it's important to own the market, right? <laughs> S&P 500, that's going to help you out a little bit because you're not, you're not looking to force things. Number two, when things are not going well, you have to be honest with yourself, okay? Which means why aren't they going well? Is it because of your execution? Huh? Uh, you know, I had 10 names on my list, but I only decided to put three buy stops and my three buy stops, those stocks went down, but the other names took off. That's my fault. That's not the market, right? Because I didn't put a buy stop in XYZ that went up 30%. So you have to be honest with yourself. And this is the reason why is execution. Are you struggling because of your execution? You're not putting buy stops in. You're not taking the losses when you're supposed to take the losses. So that's important. So when I go into a trading slump, one of my number one rules is that if I get two stop outs in one day, Mm-hmm. which is rare, then I immediately take the next day off. Mm. Okay? 
because it's rare that I get two stopouts that very that same day. Um, and when it comes to trading, I'm gonna listen right now. I'm moving pawns around. I'm moving small little trades. Mm-hmm. I want to see what I've done for the last five days, and then I'll start to increase. What's been tricky about this year is that the minute that you start to increase size, that pocket, that window closes. That's been yeah. the tricky part about this year. That you know, back, the end of May, um, you know, things started triggering, things were working out, and then once you start to increase the size after five to ten trades of small trades. Then they, they just take it back down. So I tend to reduce size. I tend to reduce size uh, and then start to increase size. I am a firm believer that you should be putting the same amount of money into each trade. Okay? Listen, there's certain times that we've seen that pattern over and over again, and you might want to push. But for most people, I think you should put the same amount of money into each individual trade or risk the same amount. Because if you really think about it, we're never going to know beforehand mm. which ones are going to be the winners or the losers. Even if you have a 70% win ratio, I can never tell you ahead of time which mm. one going to be the three losers. Yeah. So you put, you put your orders in and you let the market do whatever it is it's going to do. Mm. Right? Um, so now, for example, like I said, I'm moving pawns around. I'm moving small trades, small trades to see if I gain, if I gain some traction. And the, and the good part about that is that in January, I had a great month. Hmm. And then we peaked on February 8th. That's when you had that SPAC rap song. Hmm. That's yeah. when everyone in the gym was buying stocks, was buying Bitcoin. Uh, I had someone tell me, all you got to do is go to YouTube and punch in best small cap to buy. It's going to double and you'll double your money. <laughs> so that's when the market peaked, right? So I reduced my size and I went into a trading slump for about three months to the end of May. May, we got that small pocket of opportunity. I was able to increase my size a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I got rid of that slump. Within two weeks, I was back to highs again, just because my size was so small during my bad period. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because, it again, it goes back to that market of stocks. But you, uh, in January, your best month, I think that was when the IWM peaked, right? Or like the right. small caps and... That's when yes. you started to see, just like you said, you know, maybe the indices, the spy continues to grind, but the average trader is feeling it because the average stock is going down. Right, right. So think about, you You know, you have, you, you go through all that pain, all those months, nothing is working yeah. and you're not looking at, no one's looking at the IWM and saying the IWM is flat for seven months. No one, no one looks at the IWM. Yeah. Every, on, on CNBC, everyone at home is Dow and S&P, Dow and S&P, Right. So that's what you're being judged on. And now you go here, you have a, a three-month trading slump, uh, you know, and, and the wife is at home. What do you mean you're struggling? Market is up. I just put on CNBC. Market is up 20%. What do you mean? Right? And that's the importance of owning a piece of the, uh, a piece of the market. Yeah. So I want to be respectful of your time, and I'm going to wind down here. There's, I have so many more questions, but um, I want to touch on something that you've already given us plenty on, at least in my take, and I'm going to recap a couple of them, but beliefs that you have that go against conventional wisdom. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the whole chasing breakouts, the volume that you talked about, focusing on where stocks start their move, you know, in in terms of doing your homework. Is there anything else that just comes to mind that you think you believe that the majority of FinTwit doesn't see it that way? Targets. Mm. Okay, let's hear it. They're made up. <laughs> you can make up whatever target you want, right? So let's just and listen to and, and I want to I want to be perfectly clear. These are my, my beliefs. They don't have to be anyone else's. You know, people can believe in targets, but let's say you have a stock that's up, that's at a fifty-two all-time high. You're going to base your target on what? <laughs> you know, some people are going to base their target based. Oh, I'm risking. A dollar, so I have to make a minimum of three, so my target is three dollars above. That's nonsense. Let's say, for example, that you're, you know, that that <laughs> when people say oh, I I only take trades uh, that offer a three to one ratio, we don't know what that trade is going to give you beforehand, right? So you're basing that, and let's say, for example, that based on the chart, um, the target, the high is two ninety away, and you're risking a dollar. You're not going to say, hey, I'm going to take that trade. I'm going to make my target 13. It's only 10 cents. 
So you're making I I so so I don't believe in targets. Uh and the reason why is for me, stocks move in, in little small bursts that might last four to five days. Most stocks go up four to five days, and then they kind of like flatten out or go down. Years ago, if you look at IBD, the newspaper, not the books, they'll say sell most of your stocks at 20%. Because after we've done the studies, after 20%, stocks tend to go down, sideways to down, and we don't know if the next move is going to be higher. So they were looking at 20% targets. But a few years ago, the market changed, Right where we were not seeing those type, of, those, those type of moves. And that's when they came out with their swing trading product that was looking for 10% moves, risking 3%. Mm. So the point is that the market environment is also going to affect how much a stock is going to move in the short term. So that's the reason why targets, to me, they're just made up. I want to, whatever the stock gives me within my time frame, four to five days, Right. That's what it is. If for some reason I own the stock that that it's already up four to five days and it's only up 2%, I'm going to take that. I have to take that because I want to get involved on the first day of a multi-day move. What that stock gives me, I don't know. And that's, it's, it's going to be different in different market environments. The January market environment, I was waking up, uh, or when was it, a, a year ago, waking up at five o'clock in the morning. Some COVID play up 20%. That's a different market environment. So targets are made up. And I also believe that the risk reward ratio is also made up, kind of, and it's dynamic. The risk reward is dynamic, not static. So in other words, if I buy a stock at 10 and I made up a target of $13 a share, why? Whatever. I just made it up because it's three to one trade. I made it up. Now, if the stock goes to twelve fifty, if I don't move my stop, now I'm risking what two dollars and fifty cents to make fifty cents. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So this is the reason why the risk reward trade is dynamic. Now, let's say for example that you're basing your risk reward, your target based on what you're risking. What happens when you move your stop up? Yeah. Shouldn't the target change also? So, but again, it, it is what it is. You can, you know. That's one of the, the, the that's, that's not a big deal, uh, but that's just something I don't believe in because you can't, you, you don't know beforehand what a stock is going to give you. Every trade is random and unique just because you got 10% from here doesn't mean you'll get it from this stock. Uh, you have different market environments. I'm just looking to take from the stock what it gives me within my time frame. Mm-hmm. I can't control what it's going to give me. I'm going to take it, whatever it is. The, the beautiful part about that, which I'm sure you fully understand, but just to make it clear, this mindset, this approach you have about targets being meaningless and risk rewards being dynamic, that also mm-hmm. helps you not be emotionally attached to a number too, right? You're not holding right. out in the trade saying, God, I, you know, I got to hit my $65 target because that's where it's supposed to go. Like you're, right. you're fluid. You're, you're not attached. If you think about it, when I put my chart ideas, you're going to notice none of those stocks are extended. Hmm. I'm looking to buy on the first day of a multi-day move. That means the stock's been going sideways for multiple days. Has it's not it's not up a lot in the last five to ten days, or it's down three days or more. That's the first day of a multi-day move. So, and then so the point is, so I'm gonna take a stock that's already up four to five days, right? I'm gonna take that money and I'm gonna put it into a stock that's just getting started hmm. to be on the first day. So this is the reason why if I had a target and I said, well, then look, most stocks are kind of like peter out on day four. Oh, but it hasn't reached my $13 price target. I'm going to hold it. And then it's going to go sideways to down. So let me take in that money and let me get involved in something that's just getting started. Hmm. And when you're, when you're swing trading, you're, you know, you're in the moving business. Yeah. You're trying to compound those, those, those short-term gains as many times as possible. I'm not going to hold out for 50 cents in the stock because I made up a target. It's got to hit $13 a share because oh, it was at 13 six months ago. So it's got to hit 13 now. No. I love it. So let's uh, let's wind down here. Any Anything else that is is on your mind? You've given so much just tactical, actionable advice. And I really have loved this conversation. Anything else though that stands out before we wrap up here? 
right? Uh, first of all, execution is the most important thing, right? Mm. Position sizing is important. Execution, position sizing. Uh, the best book that you can read about trading is the one you write on your own by studying the year-to-day winners. Mm. Just take a look at them. You know, what's the pattern? Where they come from? Where has that move started? Can you write a scan based on what you see, the first 100? Uh, what matters is, you know, do those stocks, do they make money? Are they in the right sector? Are they above a certain price? That's the best book you can read about trading. And you can try all these things out at zero cost for the most part. It's not going to cost you a dime for transactions any longer. Um, so you can, you know, there's a lot of information out there, great information. You can take all that information and just make it your own. You can't be someone else. You have to be yourself. And you can, you can take the same thing. I'll take everything you have and I'll make it into my own. Maybe I'll tweak two things and that's it. But now it's my own. Now I believe in it. And if I can actually take it and see it for myself by doing the work, then that's it. But if I don't do that, then the minute something goes wrong, I'm done. I'm looking for something else. I love it. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work, stay on top of everything you're up to? Where should we send them to? You know, website, frankzarella.com, Twitter, Zortrates, all the information is there. Awesome. Well, that's it, folks. All the notes and links from this episode can be found on our website at thetraderisk.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you in a future episode. Frank, thanks for taking the time today. This was really great. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for listening to Smarter Trading. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. For all of the show notes, links, and callouts, head on over to thetraderisk.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Smarter Trading is hosted by me, Evan Medeiros, and produced by Ashton Alexander. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you in the next episode.